check. Does it louder? Higher? Is that good? That works, right? Yeah, so, so I was a little nervous that um, I would be coming this weekend with, like, there would be four of us, you know, in total, separated, and that was a real close call, but instead, it's only me, because uh, Lottie has pink eye and, um, and an ear infection, so if I'm not being very social, it's just because the nurse lady scared me to death by saying, like, it's the most contagious thing in the entire world. So if you could be praying for, for their health. But Lottie's, Lottie's in good spirits. She's doing really, really good. So this, is basic, this sermon's basically going to take us to close the first half of the series, Mark, that I've been preaching on. And, I, and I've had a really good time. It's been, it's been um, I mean, just a real joy for me to be able just to work through the, uh, the scriptures and be able to mine it for the type of stuff that uh, the Spirit has revealed to us through uh, the author Mark. And we're basically going to summarize that whole first uh, punctuation image that we had. Remember, it was the, we've been in the quotation marks as they've been referencing this identity of the Son of God from the Old Testament and basically been showing us this character who's claiming this unique authority. And we're going to kind of bring that to a close today. The central truth of today's... Oh, and, and the text that we're going to be in, pardon me. The text that we're going to be in is Mark chapter 6. So if you want to start turning there, Mark chapter 6, as I read the central truth of the sermon, today we will be confronted with this remarkable truth. By faith in the power of Christ, we find fear powerless. Now, I already talked about love. I talked about beauty. I said, well, we might as well touch on one of the most human things about our experience, which is our experience of fear. As for our chair text, kind of the text that kind of summarizes everything that we're going to go through today, that's verse 50 in chapter 6, and it reads as follows, Mark chapter 6, verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The central truth of the text is that Mark wrote Mark 6, verse 30 to 52, in order to identify Jesus' divine authority and respond to the disciples' fear in chapter 4, verse 41, by pointing to Jesus' miracles as evidence of his divinity and our ultimate source of sustenance. So my, my brother, um, brother James Burke III, was here last week, and I was very grateful that he was able to show up. He's kind of my stereotypical Southerner. Like, whenever I say stories, I'm always thinking about him. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing he probably, like, showed up in his chaplain gear and everything, right? I mean, there's a lineage there, like, for generations upon generations of individuals that have served in the military. But it was really exciting because when he came to my house for us to talk about the text, the first thing we started talking about is his chaplaincy in the hospital. And in, in specific, I thought that that's something there that really resonate with you, and the fact that a lot of what he has to do uh, that week in particular was working in the, um, the NICU, right? It's called the NICU for, for the... And basically, when one, of these child, when one of these children die, he's the one that gets called up to the scene to walk them through this. So, that is an environment of fear. But what he was teaching on was the beginning of these miracles, specifically these natural miracles. I believe he talked about the calming of the storm, right? So we're going to look more about those miracles. And the sermon today is called Remarkable. When I preached prior... 
We looked at the mysterious remarks, those parables. And today, the sermon's called Remarkable. Remarkable. We're going to look at more of these miracles and what, this, what these miracles have to tell us about fear in Jesus. And in terms of fear, I don't know about you guys, but I do not like scary movies. I've never been a fan of scary movies. I've made many conversations with people who love scary movies, but I just cannot do it. I don't see anything entertaining in scaring myself. Why would I want to do that? If I wanted to scare myself, I'd go back into working political campaigns because that gets your heart rate up. If you want, if, I mean, if that's what you're looking for, you know, um, out of a scary movie is to have those heart palpitations, you know, you could go work in politics and you'll get that much more. But I've never liked it. And I think one of the reasons I've never liked it is because when I was really little, actually when I was around third grade, I had nightmares every single night. I don't mean bad dreams. I had nightmares. And I'm, I don't mean once a week. I mean every single night for like two to three years. It's really weird. And these are like those type of night terrors that sometimes you wake up and you're just paralyzed and you can't even move for like 15 minutes. And, it, and there was some really scary stuff. And I was a pretty creative kid, so you can only imagine. I had, I had like themes of nightmares where I had the same things that would come at me. And, and I was like, man, i got to do something about this. So I got really creative. And I figured out that in a dream, if I could see my hands in the middle of a nightmare, if I could see my hands, my hands didn't look right, and the perspective didn't look right, and then I started to learn that if I closed my eyes and I clenched my hands, I could get out of my nightmare. And then it got pretty awesome, because then I learned, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to get out of my nightmare, my nightmare. I'm going to like, you know, machine gun, or like, you know, flying superpowers, I, and I started to be able to control my dreams. Just being able to fly, it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, you can't even pay for something that was that enjoyable, but my nightmares got the better of me, because then they started to figure out, I'm not even lying, they started to figure out that what I knew how to do, so, so I would, you know, try to do my thing, and it wouldn't come, and the monster would be like, and then I would try to do like my little eye closed thing, and I would open up my eyes, and I'd be laying in my bed, but I was actually dreaming, and the monster was under my bed, so in the end, after all this stuff that I tried, I usually had the same pattern, I would wake up, I would kind of sit there for like five to ten minutes, and then I would bolt to my parents' room, and I couldn't sleep on the left side, I couldn't sleep on the right side, I had to sleep right in the middle between my mom and my dad, because if I was on the edge, then they would grab me and pull me down. And that's how I spent a couple of years until, until it kind of just faded away. But the key element there is fear, and fear is something that is common to all human beings. It's everywhere, and it has a physical component to it. Maybe that's why some people like it. There's a survival element to it. But there's something really deep about fear as it pertains to being human, especially when we begin to surround ourselves by events such as you know, the death of loved ones or sickness, or in my case last week, thinking that my baby was going to be born early and she was going to be in this NICU. Fear is connected to an inability that we, that, that we have. You know, we don't have control over everything. And there's this tendency in human beings to want to have control, to want to be like God. And when we get to these moments of fear, we'll try all these things. And what we're going to find out in our text is that there is an answer here for us dealing with all these elements of fear. So, before I get to the text, quick review. Since it is the last sermon in the half series and I won't be preaching for a couple months, you've noticed that there have been remarks that Jesus has been making all throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's been making these remarks. He's been saying these, said it, these things, and they're really powerful, and they're really short. And that's what Mark likes, likes to do. He likes to keep things short and simple. But these are some of the remarks that he's been making. 
when he starts his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Follow me and I will make, and I will, and I will make you become fishers of men. Be silent and come out of him when he's speaking you know, to the demonic possessed. I will, I, I will be clean. He, you know, just by the mere words, by the power of his words, he can make those individuals who have skin diseases clean. And he goes on and on with all these different beautiful sayings. You know, Stretch out your hand. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. And in those first three chapters, as Jesus is doing his ministry, we find him teaching, and then he's also healing. And he heals by his word. Now with that, just an idea of the early remarks. We had him teaching on the parables, these interesting, you know, mysterious teachings. And then we had, starting around chapter 4, you had uh, the miracles, specifically these nature miracles. And we find here a key question. I don't know if he highlighted this, but we find here a key question in chapter 4, verse 41. And I'm actually going to read 40 to 41. He said to them, why are you so afraid? This is when the storm was brewing. And he was kind of just there sitting back in the boat. And they're waking up like, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to like die here. Verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that, can, that, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So here you have the disciples and they ask basically the key question of the text. Who is this guy? He was saying all those remarks that we've seen. But who does he think he is? I mean, who, do, who is he to say these things and then to do these things? And that kind of becomes the key question for this second half of the first half of, of the work, is who is this guy? He has these remarkable teachings. He's been doing remarkable things. And then we find that all these different episodes that have something in common. And, it, and what they have in common is we'll find these type of remarks, like one of my favorite ones is verse 39, where he just says, peace, be still. Peace, be still. And he has this command over nature that nature responds to him. If I had a command over nature, winter would have ended, I mean, a couple months back. But I don't have that power. But Jesus just go waking up and just by the power of his words can calm the storm. And in all these incidents, what's important to notice is who are the witnesses to these events and how do they respond? And what we find is that fear becomes very important in all these different events. So, you know, as an example, when Jesus calms the storm in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, when he says, peace, be still, the witnesses there are the disciples. And how do they react? They react with fear. I mean, not even just fear. After Jesus tells them, why are you guys afraid? Have some faith. Have some faith in me. They react with having great fear and looking to one another after they've been with Jesus during his ministry, looking at one another and saying, I mean, who is this guy? Fear. When Jesus heals a man with a demon, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 21, he has this remark, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, similar to the earlier um, expulsions. And there the witness is the demon. And the reaction of the demon is fear. I mean, he's afraid. The, the man who's cutting himself and has this strength that he can bend the chains, he throws himself, legion, they call themselves legion, when he asks them, you know, who are you that has possessed this man? Legion throws himself before and acknowledges him as the Son of God. So not only do they have fear, but they have knowledge of who he is. But even with that knowledge, I mean, the fear that they have is that, is that Jesus was going to rob them of, of, um, of their domain. 
So they end up jumping into these pigs, and the pigs and all that lechon gets sent to the bottom of the uh, bottom of the sea. In chapter five, verses twenty-four to thirty-four, Jesus heals a woman, and here we see something different. So we've had the reaction of the disciples who react in fear; they're afraid. And then we have this demon who knows who Jesus is. He's not, he's not asking the question, who then is this? He says that you are the son of God. Please, please, you know, don't punish me. But you have this woman, and this woman touches upon you know, uh, Jesus, and Jesus feels this power come out, come out from him, and he turns and he says, who, who was that? And, and the woman, uh, the remark there is in verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this is an unclean woman. And what she's probably thinking is that she's going through the crowd. I mean, who, who are the people that are crowding around Jesus? The sick. The people who need healing. The people who are unclean. And here she is, squeezing through all these unclean people, herself being unclean. And when she touches Jesus, Jesus turns to her. And the fact that she acknowledges who he is and shows this faith, Jesus calls her what? Daughter. And right after that, right after he calls this woman daughter because of her faith, we have the story of Jairus' daughter. And this is one of my favorite, my favorite remarks. I just love it. It just sounds good. I kind of like just putting it on Facebook just to see if people know, know, you know, know what it means. Like the fish, you know, like they used to do back in the day. But it's uh, the Talitha Kumi, right, in verse 41. And that's where he goes in there. And after he says, she's just sleeping, and, every, and they laugh at him, Jesus says that in Aramaic. He literally says, rise. Like, little girl, rise. And the reaction there is amazement. Here we have another type of reaction. But amazement isn't the same as what uh, the woman who was healed was experiencing, as we'll see in other texts. And even in this incident, in verse 36, Jesus says, Do not fear, only believe. So we have this you know, role here, fear. And we, and, we, and we saw in the parables these different audiences. And now we have these audiences reacting differently to Jesus, asking the central question, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. So to catch up to our text, since we, we don't want to treat some of these things, we're going to have to kind of gloss over to get to our text some stuff that, that happens in chapter 6. So I'll just mention it. To catch up, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's rejected. Jesus, the Son of God, the same person that we've talked about that has been doing all these things, when he gets there, even though that they're astonished, that's the word that's used to describe them, even though that they're astonished, Jesus does some healing, but Jesus said that he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he leaves. And after this, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles in, ver- in chapter 6, verse 7 to 13. And what we find here is that they're sent out to preach the gospel. I mean, to preach this message of repentance. And you see the same pattern with them, teaching and healing. And then finally, you have the death of John the Baptist in chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. And there you see Herod and Herod's fear of John. So those three incidents, standing between these nature miracles, brings us to our text. And what we just finished looking at is we just finished looking at a bunch of remarks. So we looked at some remarks. Jesus has been saying remarks all throughout the book so far, and the key question has been, who is he? We know that he's the son of God because Mark has told us in the beginning. But if we're going to be traveling here with the disciples, the question is, how is he able to make these remarks? How is he able to do these things? That's why I cut the word remarkable in half. I just thought it was a good, a good way to visualize what's going on here in the text. 
So he's making these remarks, and now we're going to see why he's able to do that. And it's been hinted all throughout the text, but here it really becomes clear. So, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 44. In your Bible, if you want to read with me, this is the incident of the feeding of the 5,000. So the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the, two, the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets of, full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So, here we have another natural miracle. Jesus is going to perform another of these later on in the text. But he goes and he takes the small amount after he tells them, okay, you guys feed them with that stuff. Because the point that we're going to see here is that the focus is not on the miracle but now it's on the miracle worker. And that's one of the reasons he's saying, well, you guys go and do it. So the moment that they see, well, we can't, we don't, have, we don't have the means to do this, it's now going to turn on him and his ability. But what's really important to understand why he is able to do this is, you know, one of the images, one of the reasons I gave you the image of quotation marks is because when you quote something from another text, when you quote something from a source, you use quotation marks, remember? So that people can know that you're quoting something. And in specific, Mark is not as blatant about it. He's not as forward in saying, hey, this is something that the Old Testament talked about. Some of the other texts will be. Mark, I mean, you're seeing as the way that Mark is describing things, it's kind of like there, but you have to dig for it. And when you dig for it, then you begin to really see the value of why he's able to do this. So one example is Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 10 to 16. Now that's a jump to go from like Mark to Ezekiel, that's why I always had those little Bible tabs. But I have it up here if you want to read it with me. It's just a little small. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 10 to 16. So this relates to, in Mark chapter 6, 34, when he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we know that shepherd is a big theme when it's describing, uh, when it's describing Jesus. I mean, it's a big theme in the Bible, right? David was a shepherd. But he has compassion of them because they are like a sheep without a shepherd. 
Well, I want you to see what happens in Ezekiel 34, verse 10 to 16. What we find here is that God promises to shepherd his people directly. He provides them with shepherds. But he's going to promise to shepherd them directly. So verse 10 reads as follows. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. So what you have going on there is that the people that God had desired to shepherd for Israel... I mean, as the old, the, old, the old Testament story shows us, that didn't happen. I mean, time after time after time, the leadership fell into corruptions. Judges is a really good example of that when you look at it from the beginning to the end. So Jesus gets to the point where he says, I myself, I mean, God's, well, tongue in cheek. God says himself that I'm going to go and I'm going to shepherd the people. And here you have Jesus recognizing that they have no shepherd and identifying himself. And that's nothing new. Remember what happened with John the Baptist, as the one who prepares the way in the wilderness, he prepares the way in the wilderness for Yahweh. And here we see Jesus identifying as this divine figure in this portrayal, bringing them to these green pastures, lying them down, feeding them. But in regards to verse 34 in, in, in Mark, where it says, teach them, eat in green pastures, there's another text, a beautiful text in in uh, Psalms, that also helps flesh out this idea of the identity of this person who's able to do these things and say these things. Psalm 23, verses 1 to 4, is going to sound really familiar for a lot of you, and it reads as follows. It's Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there we see another depiction of the Lord as the shepherd. And the type of promises that are made there are not just some kingly ruler, but we're talking about eternal promises here. He's promising to, leave, to lead them through this um, valley of the shadow of death, this uh, image of an overflowing cup, of being anointed, this fruitfulness. And here we have Jesus 
And he's really doing all these things at that very moment. I mean, he's leading them there, sending them by still water, ironically water that he had stilled earlier, and he's feeding them. But in specific, oh, we're we're actually going to get there right now. So, in addition to this image here of him identifying as this figure, this shepherd figure, we have then verse 41 in Mark chapter 6. And this is where, you know, after he feels this compassion and he begins to feed them, he gets these items and then he looks up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to disciples to set before the people. So, what's a shepherd supposed to do? Shepherd protects the flock, but the shepherd also feeds the flock. I mean, he satisfies the sheep. He brings them out there and protects them as they eat. And here we have the shepherd, Jesus, taking this flock and feeding them. But what's interesting to note is that before he physically feeds them, again, the same pattern. What does he do? He teaches. He teaches. He feeds them with the Word of God, with this teaching. And then he goes and provides for their basic needs. And again, one more verse. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 and 16. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which, did not, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So, a lot of parallels here with this figure from the Old Testament. I mean, and this figure is chiefly God, this chief shepherd, that this is what it's going to look like when God comes to shepherd his flock. And we find here Jesus, one of the reasons he's so focused on his teaching ministry is because man does not live on by, by bread alone, but by the very word of God, that same word that created them, and more parallels abound between the feeding, of, uh, the feeding of the manna in the wilderness. Here we have, a, as one of the disciples um, s- says, a desolate place, a deserted place. We still have these images. So when you look at those parallels, and then you add on top of that how the gospel begins with, uh, with John the Baptist in the wilderness preparing the way for Yahweh, the image begins to become pretty clear who this is. I mean, the reason why this guy's able to make these remarks and do these things is because he's God. He is fulfilling that portrait. Those quotes about him are describing him. This is Yahweh incarnate. He's come here to deliver his people, to help them live on the word of God, and he, and he shows the authority of this word by the actions that he takes. But even then, perhaps that's still not forward enough. It's still not clear enough that that that's who he is. And you're going to see why that's so important, that that he is divine. Well, then we'll get to the miracle right after that, which makes it abundantly clear. So, our last passage is Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 52. So, so far what we've done is we've looked at the remarks that we've been talking about throughout the series. The key question has been from... Uh, chapter 4, verse 41, who is this guy that he can do these things? The demons acknowledge that he was the Son of God. We've seen portrayals that parallel him with Yahweh from the Old Testament and Yahweh's promises of the chief shepherd. And now we get 
to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 52, and it becomes blatantly clear. Couldn't say it any clearer. And here we have the miracle of Jesus walking on water. So it's an appropriate inclusio you know, that you have in chapter 4, verse 41. They're on the boat and the storm's coming. And, and they're like, Jesus, what are we going to do? And Jesus calms the storm. And then they're like, who is this guy? And now Jesus is going to answer that question in another episode that involves a boat and water. But this time, he's going to walk on it. Verse 45, chapter 6, Mark. Immediately, there's that word immediately that he uses all the time. He wants you to get this sense of urgency. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, verse 48, pass them by, and walking on the sea. I did some word studies, and I thought it was really interesting, this term, pass them by. If Jesus didn't want to be seen, he could have just walked further away, and they wouldn't have seen him. But the text chooses to say that Jesus passed them by. And passed them by is saturated with meaning as well. You can, you can think of you know, the Old Testament with incidents of Moses and God, where God passes by so that he can see an aspect of his glory. But after all these occurrences, one that I was really interested in is the parallel of this text and Job. Because already, the fact that Jesus is walking on water in the sea, I mean, there's something different about this guy. And that would suffice. But we have all these other miracles where he's controlling the weather and he's showing this type of authority. So what I found in Job is that the walking on the sea, I'm not, well, the Greek words there for passing by, pass them by, and walking on the sea is used in Job. It's used in Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. And in this section, Job and his dialogue with God, Job is explaining God's supremacy. And one of the ways he, he explains God's supremacy is he says that God tramples down the waves of the sea. And you have the same three words in Greek that are used, literally walking on the sea, that we find in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, than we do here in this verse. And then also you have there, in two verses later, where he describes his passing by. And, and Job is portraying his humanness to God's divinity in this incident that this is the God of the universe who created everything, all the animals, and he's able to trample, I mean, he trampled the sea, he can walk on the sea, and now you have Jesus taking up this same type of language, this same type of fulfillment. Those type of parallels have abounded, but you still may want Jesus just to say it. I mean, who are you? Just say it. And that's where we go into our key text, which is verse 50. Take heart, it is I, 
do not be afraid. That it is I is important. In, in the Greek, it's ego I, I me. So ego means like I. And then I me means I am. So he uses this weird Greek construction to say I, I am. I, I am. He could have just, and I looked at other incidents where those type of words are used, and in other places you'll find they'll just say I, they'll just say ego, and other places they just say Amy. But when John writes in his gospel, all of those I am's, he uses the same type of construction, especially at the beginning. And why does he do this? Well, doesn't I am sound familiar? Of course it does. That's how you know, God describes himself to Moses when Moses is asking him, who shall I say sent me? He says, well, tell them, you know, the, the I am has sent you. And in the Septuagint, you know, when I was looking at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same type of construction. So here Jesus tells them, in this instant of his walking on water and their fear, to take heart. And why should they take heart? Because it is the I am. Do not be afraid, it is the I am. So to summarize, we've been in this series called Mark. Specific, we're looking for the marked one and the ones who've been marked, the disciples. And this first half consisted of Jesus' ministry, his early ministry in Galilee and out of Galilee. We've just gotten out of Galilee. And what, and what he's wanting to do there is he's wanting you to see the teaching, to experience the teaching of the Son of God and this teaching and healing pattern and to see this authority. And at the end of the text, he just tells us straight up who he is. Here is the I am. So that question that the disciples asked in chapter 4, verse 40 to 41, when then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We find the answer in another miracle that involves a boat in the water. In all these remarks, we see this relationship between fear and faith. And again, something that is essential to being human. We have this fear that we want to control things in our lives. And we'll try to find any reason whatsoever. And I think you really see it start with Eve when Eve wanted to be like God. She wanted a certain knowledge. She didn't like the idea of not having a certain type of knowledge. And we as human beings, we'll try to figure out anything to protect our lives, to protect our interests, because we have this fear of not being in control. So we have all these remarks that Jesus makes, all these wonderful remarks, and how is he able to make them? What we find out in our first miracle, Jesus feeding the 5,000, is that God was promised to be the shepherd in Ezekiel and the Psalms, and here we have Jesus doing exactly what was prophesied. In addition, we have God in the Old Testament being the provider of the manna and the word, and here we have Jesus, the word, providing life-giving teachings and these basic necessities of food. With Jesus walking on water in Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 52, we have this discussion in Job showing the supremacy, showing his difference with humanity. In particular, you know, this contrast between him and, and Job is described as his supremacy over nature, literally as the trampling of the waves of the ocean, the walking on the water. And here we have Jesus using the same Greek construction and walking on water. And he passes them by as if to give them just like Moses, when you pass by Moses to give him a hint of his glory, we have the same thing here. And this is what makes all of this so remarkable. Because we just don't have an authoritative teacher here. I mean, we have God. And when you think about this in the context of fear, 
it becomes very difficult to really be scared of anything. Because if you have the Lord, the creator of heavens and earth, giving you these promises, then fear becomes powerless. So I'll give you an example. When I woke up, so when I was little, I was at a point where I tried to conquer my, my nightmares, right? Like I said in the beginning of the sermon. And I got really witty, and I was able to do some of it. But then it got to the point where I was just like, this is beyond my power. So where did I go? Go to my parents, between my mom and my dad. You know, because my dad could beat up anything at that time. Now that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father, I'm in that role. Interesting. This morning, when I woke up, well, this morning as I was up doing my sermon prep, I started hearing my daughter cry, so I run into the room, and it was kind of funny, because she has her little crib thing, and this is the first time I ever see her do this, she, would, she normally gets up, and she holds the crib, and she starts crying, because she wants me to pick her up, but this time, she was holding the crib facing the wall, and she was crying, never seen her do that before, I'm like, why is she doing that, and she's just crying, like, Papa, Papa, please, you know? Wah, Papa, please. So I go, Papa goes in there. I love it when, she, you know, she makes me feel useful. And when I pick her up, you know, if you've had pink eye before, what happens in the morning? Can't even open your eyes. Because it's all crusty. You know, you have all this nasty, you know, disgusting looking mucus coming out. And it dries up when you're sleeping, so you can't even open your eyes. So she couldn't see. So she was facing the wall. She didn't even know it holding there, crying for Papa. And there I go. But to parallel the example of me and my dreams, what's funny is that even though she needed me, I couldn't just say, open your eyes. I mean, it was me versus mucus. Okay, me versus mucus. And not even me being able to say, Charlotte Ann, I couldn't even make the remark, Charlotte Ann, open your eyes. And I could not have defeated mucus. So you can only imagine if that's how pitiful my remark is. The type of remarks that Jesus makes are incredible. And in specific, you see the difference. What I was able to do is I went over, and I took her into the bathroom, and I did the whole cotton swab things, and when I got her eyes open, I took her to Mama. But I couldn't tell her, open your eyes. And if she was blind, I couldn't tell her, see. Because I'm not the God of the heavens. Even with the death of brothers and sisters, this is one place we really begin to see it. And, and I remember when I was reading Imelda's email, it kind of just fit into the discussion regarding fear, because she writes, praying also that the peace of God will reign in the heart of Ate Esther and family in this time of storm. The word of God says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. And that reminded me when I did my Abuelita, as my grandma's funeral, I had to go down to Miami. I told you about this. She was, hooked up, uh, she was hooked up to machines, and we had to make the decision of what we were going to do, and I did my first funeral for my grandma. And I always remember, everyone around me was just torn asunder. I mean, you can't imagine. When, I mean, Cubans normally, Cubans normally are super passionate. And then in familial crisis is like that. It's a whole nother level. But I always remember that sense of peace and control that I had. And it was hard to really feel any sense of um, 
of loss. Not, not because that's, that's wrong or it's unnatural, but just because I knew where she would be. I knew that she would be there in paradise. And what I've learned is that I've continued to mature in my Christian walk. Fear has really begun to lose all of its power. Because when you look and you understand who Jesus is, the one who says, open your eyes and see, the one that says, be still, the one that says, give me your hand, let me hear you, the one that says, stand up and walk, when you really begin to understand that he is the I am, he's not Leonard versus Mucus, but this is the creator of the heavens, the one who has trampled the waves underneath his feet. And he tells you, because those remarks are directed at us, he tells you, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It becomes difficult not to listen. And the assurance that we have there, that he will walk with us through these valleys with the shadow of death into green pastures. And that when he said that, he didn't simply mean he was going to feed us fish and bread next to the Sea of Galilee, but that he was talking about the work that he was going to do on the cross. If you're a believer, that is one of the greatest senses of assurances and comfort that you could possibly have, whether it be in a funeral or whether it be at a crisis at your work. I mean, there's a hashtag first world problems that people like to use. Well, we can like even one-up that, you know? Like, I mean, there is no hashtag for Christian problems because we really can't have any. I mean, we have the greatest of joys, and it's been secured for us by Christ. And that's something to meditate on if you're a believer and you have that comfort. And if you're not a believer, then there is there a role, a great sense and a great, a great role there for fear. That's one of the reasons why in the Old Testament, God is not throwing dandelions around. And when Jesus returns, he's not going to be coming down with a rose. But we're going to see him in his compassion, his mercy, but also his justice. So for those that are not believers, this has another meaning for you. To take heart that this is the Lord God speaking to you. And by his spirit speaking to your heart. And just as he started in the Gospel of Mark, it's the same sermon, which is repent and turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you can close your eyes with me. Father, we're so grateful that the I Am had come in the form of a babe. Lord, that he was so human to our eyes that when he returned uh, to, to his hometown, th the claims that he was making stunned them. Because he has so thoroughly experienced what it is to be human. But at the same time, Lord, he's not simply human. At the same time, he is the I am who looks to us and remarks to our heart to be still, to be reminded, Father, that uh, just as he raised that girl from the dead, Lord, we will all be raised to eternity with him in paradise. To have a banquet that belittles anything we can do after our services with Filipino food. But, Father, that we are assured a feast beyond the multiplication of loaves and fishes, but one in which what we get to feast upon, Lord, is the very Word of God for all of eternity in its, in its infinite form. Father, we pray that, that these words may not be empty to us, but by the power of your Spirit, the Spirit that you and your mercy provided us so that we can equip ourselves with this understanding, that that Spirit may fill us in full with this reminder and that this reminder will bring us peace in whatever storms we find ourselves in. In your name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.